I want to introduce our wonderful guest who came all the way from Memphis to be here. Uh, I mean, that's really a long way, and we really appreciate it. We have Frank Ricks with us. He is the founder and the senior managing principal at, I want to make sure I get it right, at Looney Ricks Kiss. I love the name of that firm. And the company was founded in 1983, and it has grown into be a remarkable architectural firm uh, with seven offices around the country. And the most interesting thing, I think, in talking to Frank beforehand is that his background isn't formally just in architecture. It's in architecture, in engineering, and in design. Um, and I think that you'll all find this very interesting. He's brought us wonderful pictures of a lot of his projects, and we'll share a lot of his insights with you. So without further ado, Frank Ricks. Thank you. Good afternoon. Delighted to be here. Uh, it was a long plane ride, but it's, uh, uh, Mike's been showing me around the campus. It's a great place, uh, which is I've always wanted to see the campus. I've been in this area of the country before, but never been able to visit the campus. And it is a great place, and that's what we do, or that's what we attempt to do anyway in our business is create great places for things like this to happen and for people to interact and technology to interface with sort of the, I call it the bowls of life, that the architecture, the spaces that we create and the places, the spaces in between the buildings, that's where the human activity takes place and that's what, uh, that's what drives us. It's not about the buildings, it's about what happens in and around the buildings. So that's where, uh, hopefully I can make some of those connections for you that are, might be wondering why in the world is an architect here talking to me this afternoon. Um, so Mike tried to give me a, a little bit of... Uh, guidance on how to do this. So I'm going to ramble here for a few minutes. And I did bring some images because it's hard as a uh, designer and an architect for, to talk without something to point to in terms of an image. So uh, we'll do that in a minute. So just bear with me while we uh, run through some uh, background issues that have to do with leadership and uh, entrepreneurism and just sort of how we got started and what we did and how we're still learning. And um, Every day, with something is new and different, and I think that's part of uh, part of what makes life and business fun. Uh, I'm a small town kid from the south, if you can't tell by the accent, um, country boy, and uh, so that sort of gave me a self-sufficiency as a kid. Uh, my dad was a machinist, and he could make just about anything. So I, ha I grew up with this attitude that if you don't have it, you just make it. Uh, and I think that influenced me ultimately about going into business for ourselves is uh, you just do it. Um, interesting little, uh, at, at about eight years old, uh, thinking about uh, entrepreneurism, uh, my dad had a big garden, huge garden. We lived on about five acres, and he had this really big garden, and I helped him every year plant it. And eventually one day he said, uh, you want that piece of dirt over there? For what? Plant your own garden. Why would I do that? Well, helping you plant yours. Well, you might be able to uh, grow your own vegetables. That'd be yours. And then you could harvest the vegetables, put them in your wagon, take them up the street about a mile up the highway to the new subdivision uh, where all the new houses were. And I bet some of those folks would uh, want those vegetables, and maybe you could sell them make some money. So I thought, okay. So I did it, planted, the, you know, nurtured the garden, harvested the vegetables, put them in the wagon, and I was amazed. I'd pull the wagon up to the door, ring the doorbell, and I was scared to death. Lady opened the, door, the first lady opened the door, and she said, what do you want? You know, thought I was selling something, and I was. But then I said, I've got 
And all I did was show it to her. She oh, great. And so I started selling vegetables at eight years old, making money. And I had lots of jobs. And that, and that, that experience, what my dad did, sort of set me probably the wheels turning that uh, there's, I'll do this again somewhere down the road. Um, as Tina said, I went to the University of Memphis, which does not have an accredited school of architecture yet. We're still working on it. We've been working on it for 30 years, and I think we're really close. And I understand you guys are starting something here. That's great. Because, again, architecture affects a lot of things in a lot of ways, uh, all of us in some way. And uh, so I think it's really important. And, but beyond that, just design. And so uh, when I went to school at U of M, it was actually in the engineering college, and it was uh, architectural engineering and technology. And so there's a strong connection to, uh, uh, in my education to the engineering disciplines and the collaboration of all of that, uh, trying to put all those things together. That had a big influence on us. Both of my partners are graduates of the same program. So in some ways, we like to say we're not traditional architects because we didn't go through the normal pipeline. Um, and in fact, a lot of people thought we wouldn't make it because of that, because we, weren't, uh, we didn't have the appropriate uh, pedigree at the time. What we did have was a passion for what we do, and we actually thought it was beneficial that we had the background that we had in terms of this multidisciplinary uh, um, exposure to the world and problem solving, not just pure architectural design theory. So to us, it's not does it look great as a piece of architecture. In fact, that's kind of somewhere down from the list. It's does it work, does it serve the purpose, does it add value to people's lives, does it add value from a business perspective, and that's how we began our careers. Um, Carson Looney and I met at school and just sort of kicking around the ideas, and I'm sure some of you are having these same conversations. Uh, yeah, it'd be kind of cool to have a start a business, wouldn't it? Yeah. Eat some more pizza, drink some more beer, have the same conversation over and over again. Um, for months after months, not really serious in some ways. Part, you know, in the back of your mind, serious, but not really because you didn't know how you were going to get there. But we had those conversations long enough and frequently enough that we began to believe it. And uh, so, as an architect, though, you have to be registered to practice. It's one of the, you know, what five professions where you have to be registered by the state. Each state licensed architect, so you can't just go out and do architecture without going through an internship and then getting your license and, um, and being approved to practice. So we had to get through that hurdle. So time went by, and uh, we worked together, and, and we started getting closer to this idea. And we began to say, well, if we pass the exam, maybe we start the firm. And um, so we got within a year, and we decided we'll take the exam. This is like six years out of school, and we'll start the firm. It's just that simple. And... Um, then we thought, what if we don't pass? Then what? And then we thought, do we really know enough to do this? Well, we don't know. We haven't done it before. So I, I was working in a firm and met a guy there that I, I liked working with a lot, Richard Kiss. And uh, Richard was seven years older than Carson and I. And so uh, we thought we could use the experience, the technical knowledge, and he already had his license, so that was our backup plan. If we didn't pass the test, we could still open the firm. So... Um, we got our test results back in September of 83, and fortunately, Carson and I both passed, and uh, we started the firm December, or sorry, uh, yeah, December 3rd, 1983, so we'll be 22 years old in, uh, in about three weeks. So we started out as three, and the game plan was really um, to just see if we could last for a year, 
We said, if we can last for a year, we'll probably make it. If we don't, we'll go get a job somewhere else. Uh, it was really that simple. We were talking, like we were talking earlier, and, and I said, I, you know, it was. I'd like to say there was some bigger grand plan, but it was very. It was just believing in what we knew how to do, and that we really wanted to do it. And also, part of it was the firms that we worked for didn't really have a clear path to allow us to do the, to quickly uh, put ourselves in leadership positions and ownership positions. And I speculate sometimes that if the firms we worked for had that sort of avenue, that we may not have started the firm. I don't know. So it's hard to say. But I know that had a lot to do with us deciding we were going to try it. And if we, if we failed, we'd, uh, we'd start over somewhere else doing something else. So we mortgaged. Uh, Carson and I actually had a house that we had renovated together. And uh, we sold the house, split the profits, and, uh, and, uh, and we used that to live on for the next six months. We didn't take a salary. Uh, for six months and made a whole lot less money that first year than, uh, than we had the previous years. And Richard was married. Uh, he and his wife took a second mortgage, and that's how we started the firm. And it was just that simple. And we had diverse backgrounds in project types. Um, Carson had focused a lot on single-family housing and small commercial restaurant banks, that kind of thing. Richard had a lot of uh, institutional, hotel, big project experience. I'd done a lot of uh, healthcare work, uh, hotels, office buildings, and I had traveled a lot in my work previously and had contacts in other places besides Memphis. And so we thought, surely to goodness, between the three of us, we could scratch out a living for a year. And that was the game plan. Uh, so we started really as, as general practice architects. Uh, and this was it. I made a little note here. Uh, let me back up. But so we started planning. We really got serious about nine months, maybe 12 months max before December. So that would be 82. Um, and we started meeting and talking and, and doing the business plan, kind of, but just really scribbles on, on paper, nothing uh, exotic. Although we did go to a Saturday morning small business administration seminar on how to how to start your business. But we bought a. Uh, we shelled out our own cash and bought, in advance of opening the firm, a Texas Instrument 8088 processor with a 5-meg hard drive PC. And like no one else had, we were like on the cutting edge of the architectural firms in Memphis because no one had this. We were still doing This was a long time ago. We, um, and a dot matrix printer, and we started learning all that. So it was, it was you know, we were, we, were, we were doing the technology thing early on, and that was, that was a, we were real proud of our ability to be able to pull that off with this little toy that, uh, you know, had, had less power than my watch does. Uh, the other thing is we did uh, several years after we started the firm and we were uh, successful, somebody said, uh, I can't believe you guys started the, the, the firm right at the, right at the end of a recession. I went, was there a recession? We didn't know there was a recession. There was a recession in 82 and 83. The firms we worked for had plenty of work. We didn't know there was a recession, but now I've read so that was one of the, you know, it was a pretty significant recession in the scheme of history. Since uh, the Depression, we didn't know. We just started. We had work. We thought we could get work. We just started and dove in. The first project that we had, we actually made happen. Uh, we knew a landowner, and we knew uh, a property owner that owned uh, some land in an old warehouse right on the bluff in Memphis. And we knew a developer that wanted to do uh, a downtown project. And uh, we put them together. And we may, and so to, in my mind, even though I'm not the developer, we're practicing, we started creating this uh, 
spirit of entrepreneurism in the firm early on about how do we make things happen, how do we make deals for everybody so it's a win-win situation. And so we put them together in in a matter of a month. We had our first large project that was a 12-unit condo project right on the bluff looking over the Mississippi. Great project. So we started in December, and I think it was in January, uh, the developer called and said he was putting the project on hold. We thought it was over. We thought... We thought we were looking for jobs already, but we, we were able to keep going with the little bit of work that we had in these different marketplaces, and, um, and it survived. And we began to uh, build the firm and build the staff and grow it. And so our game plan, besides lasting a year, was, and we did, t- this is one thing we talked about a lot um, over the pizza and beer. Um, we said, if it works, we've got to have a strong team, build a really strong team and very thoughtfully build the team because we knew that made the difference from the places we had worked in the past. Uh, When the team was not strong and not composed properly, it created problems and weaknesses that we thought would undermine our success. We wanted to share responsibility, not just between the three of us, but that was part of it, but with anyone that was in the firm. We wanted to, to push down and to let people grow up. We said we want to share information. A lot of firms, uh, and a lot of firms still do this, particularly in the architectural business, uh, they don't share with the staff financial information, contractual information. They just sort of give them pieces of work, and they do it, and, and they give it back. And we, we never thought that was a good thing, and we said we're not going to do it. So basically, we share everything there is to know except for personal salaries and bonuses. If anybody can see anything, we put reports out there. Every bit of our business is open to the entire staff. Um, we also said we're going to share profit. We said if, we, if we're going to expect these things out of the people that work with us, the team that we're building, we have to share the reward because we felt like that would sustain the firm. Because, again, that was part of the reason we were leaving the places that we had been employed. We knew we were making things happen there, but we, weren't, we didn't see the return on it. Uh, we wanted to share ownership. Not just share the profit, but literally have people invested and say they're an owner. They own stock in the firm because I believe owners act differently than non-owners, and particularly in a service business. We don't make anything. All we have, all we have is, as designers to offer because we don't produce. Contractors build buildings. We don't. Architects design them. So all we've got is what's between the ears of everybody in our firm. And, uh, and so we wanted that ownership level because we think that makes a difference, and we're not, you know, that's all we're selling is that intellectual capital. And uh, I believe owners respond differently to situations. And then the last one, which is actually perhaps most important, but these others are fundamental underneath our, our, the operation of our firm, but we, really, we wanted to do really good work. If we couldn't find the right kind of work and we couldn't build the right kind of team, then we didn't want to be in business. It was important to us not to just have a business and make money, it was to do really good work and to continually to advance the work that we did and, in essence, make better places. And, we, again, we started out as a general practice architectural firm. It was all about the buildings and uh, not so much about what happened in them or between them and the places created. It was just about the object. And, um, and I'll talk to you more about how we have evolved and sort of, I say, matured into a different kind of designer that's more about uh, the people. So just some real quick statistics about um, 
we started in 84. At the end of 84, we had about seven people just from a growth standpoint. In, in 85, uh, we hired a guy named Daryl Russell. He became the fourth principal, and so we tested this idea of sharing ownership. Daryl said, I can't stand doing these buildings. I've I got to leave. I'm leaving the firm. But we knew Daryl was extremely talented. He'd been with us about two years, and we had him doing roof details and wall sections of the building shell. I said, well, Daryl, we don't want you to go. What do you want to do? He said, I really like doing interiors. We were doing an incorpor- a corporate interiors project. He said, I love working on that corporate project, the interiors. I said, okay, so why can't you do interiors here? He said, well, we don't really do that. And I said, but we could. And he looked at me like, how does that happen? And, and, and so, you know, the conversation goes. And finally I said, Daryl, what do you need to start? He said, I said, just do it. You build the interiors group. And uh, he said, well, I'll need some stuff. I said, what kind of stuff? He said, well, the first thing I need are some shelves. For what? To put the binders of carpet and wall covering and all, you know, all the stuff that interior designers have to have. So we, uh, I approved, not very formally, three three-foot shelves that we hung on the wall, and that was the beginning of our interiors practice. Daryl grew that practice to the largest interior design group in the middle Mid-South, we call it around Memphis, three-state region. In the Mid-South, it became the most profitable group in the firm. He became principal in the firm and owns, uh, uh, he's the third largest stockholder in the firm right now. And so we made it work, and which then set the, you know, that was our test. We now have 11 principals. We have uh, several senior associates. And up until last year, about anywhere from 40 to 50% of our firm owned stock in the firm. Now everyone owns stock because we started an ESOP and we still make additional offers to key people that so they have a higher level of ownership. We think that's absolutely at the bottom of our uh, success because they, they have a, a very uh, vested interest in it. So that stock sale happened in 88. Um, at the end of 93, we were 33 people. That was our first really big significant job uh, in terms of a corporate headquarters that sort of launched us, and from there, we, over the next five years, we grew to a, about 160 people, which uh, I know here on the West Coast, you guys have heard some really wild stories about rapid growth, and we don't have anything to uh, compare to some of the dot-com companies. But going from 33 to 100-plus people in a short period of time was just absolutely uh, exciting and gut-wrenching and scary and wore us out, and just it was crazy. I mean, we were hiring people as fast as we could find them, and occasionally we made mistakes because we thought we had to have people more than we had to have the right team. That was a mistake. Um, it's better to turn the work down, in our opinion, until we get the right people to do the job if, we're, if our focus is on quality. Uh, so we learned lessons through all of that. Um, it was it was a big deal. It was a very short when we chart the ride. It was very it was a steep growth curve, and we landed a lot of big jobs. Uh, something you might find interesting, since you guys are focused on technology a lot, is we ended in '95. We got the uh, World Technology Center for FedEx, which is based in Memphis, and that was that was absolutely uh, fascinating. We actually did it in collaboration with Gensler, who's based here in San Francisco. We worked with their Houston office but basically did a million square feet over about three-year period, and it was a culture change for FedEx. They had typically not had the kind of spaces that we were seeing with Sun and HP and, and a lot of the uh, tech companies out here. So we came and visited, and we looked at what was motivated. And their, their issue, FedEx had this issue of attraction and retention in the Delta. 
in Memphis. How do you get? How do you compete with the brain power here or in Boston? And uh, and so part of our job was to how do how do we help FedEx change their culture to allow this new building and facility totally different from anything they'd ever done that sort of broke all of their rules. In fact, a lot of people internally were saying it would never happen. And I think part of it had, obviously, the client, part of the client anyway, wanted to do it. Part of it was putting together this multidisciplinary team that was focused on helping them change their culture, not on just how do we build a building. And I'm telling you that story because we went from building buildings, designing buildings, I should say, and getting them built to helping our clients solve problems and connect the dots because bringing this, we bring in a team of, of different disciplines of designers and they're asking questions from all different angles and out of that come, it's very much, um, I, I should acknowledge IDEO. I mean, it's, we use the IDEO tape. How many people have seen the IDEO Nightline tape? We use that internally. To, that, when we saw that, we said, that's our training tape. I mean, that's what we try to do, that whole idea of bringing everybody to the table, stakeholders, facilitating that process, and out of that, usually some magic comes. And it's not the magic about, you know, what's the wall made of. and it, That's all part of it, but it's really how do you, what's the purpose of the building, what are the people doing in it, and what sustains it long term. And... Um, so, you know, you could talk about those kinds of things forever, but it was that was a sort of a, a pivotal project for us as well and went on to do uh, a variety of things. What happened, and I'm going to switch over to this, we, uh, along the way, so we've added partners along the way. We started, to, we opened office, the first, uh, second office in Nashville and then in Princeton. Princeton was actually a planning office. We grew from just doing buildings to this idea of connecting the dots on a different plane and, um, we found ourselves needing to do plant, actually planning the sites and the places before we worry about buildings going in them. Because if we get the plan wrong, it doesn't really matter if the architecture is good or not. We're not going to end up with a good place. So we uh, merged with a small firm in Princeton, and that's they lead our planning and urban design group. And then our other offices became uh, established because of clients and also attraction and retention of uh, staff. It's not about geographical conquest. Really, every office we have outside of Memphis is about attracting and retaining people because we have the right people. We actually find that the clients will come. It's about, the, it's about the strength of the team for us. Because, again, we're not selling anything. It's not, we're not creating it, and then it's on the, uh, it, we're putting something out for people to buy off the shelves. We're, uh, we're actually selling it. Every, every project we do, we're starting over with that whole process. So we find ourselves now in this place of place, what we call placemaking, which is kind of a buzzword for these things um, these days, but uh, the work we're doing in terms of make, having, composing the places and the buildings in a way that creates some intrinsic value, much like the campus. There are places on this campus that are much stronger. The whole campus is great, but as we were walking around today, some places feel pretty good. Some, you turn the corner. And it feels absolutely fantastic. You know, just there's this intrinsic difference in about how that space is composed. Sort of the same thing with, a, with an iPod. I mean, that thing feels good in your hand. It looks good. I mean, it's designed, you know, that you can hold it, touch it. Lots of uh, technology devices are, you know, and IDOs into all that. It's a, it's, a, it's a tactile thing, and it's something you can hold. Architecture and urban design, you can't put your arms around it, but people know it when they're there. If I ask you all to think about 
where's a really good place you like to, to, to like have a, a, a dinner, a sidewalk cafe? Where do you like to vacation? Where do you, those kind of, you know, get those images in your head that are just favorite places that involve built space. It's, sometimes it's hard to put your hand, your finger on exactly what it is. You just know that it's good and it stimulates you in some way. That's really hard to write a formula for. There's nothing in a textbook that tells you exactly how to do it. There's no business plan for it. It just takes getting the right people in the right place with the right client, and it all clicks. Um, so it's hard. Every time we start a project, we're having to sort of reassemble all of that. So these. So here's just running through real quickly. Ten minutes here, and we'll hit questions. Uh, our work now ranges from, like on the left, that's 100 city blocks of urban redevelopment and restoration uh, to projects like on the right that are uh, hundreds and thousands of acres of uh, rural landscape, greenfield kind of development. How do we do that in a responsible way? How do we create that quality of place? How do we put the quality back into the urban redevelopment? Uh, we work on projects that range in scale and, and from traditional and residential to contemporary and modern and uh, corporate, um, from private sector to uh, public sector and institutional, entertainment uh, venues, civic and educational knowledge-based venues. Um, we help restore historical assets, build places that, People are motivated to uh, improve their lives through their uh, physical well-being and uh, spiritual well-being. Place on the left is for uh, people that are down on their luck and need a good place to stay and deserve a good place to stay to uh, places like on the right where uh, people are up on their luck and have uh, are living a good life and need a five-star uh, ski resort to stay in. So it's a range. You know, it's in... You go from one extreme to the next. The issues are still the same. People are people, and the delivery process has similarities, but you have to get there in a different path. So every time we're doing this, it, uh, we're, we're starting over, which for me is the entrepreneurial spirit that, that drives us. It's like we're starting over and, and creating. We're not creating a company, but we're creating this solution for our clients that uh, is unique. And so for that reason, we evolved. I said this evolution. We started out as architects. I'd say we've evolved into uh, planners and interior designers, and we've really matured into urban designers. So our company, I could chart you know, and show you how we've made these phases. It affects the projects we select because not every project, not every owner, not every client will let us do this. Um, but we're trying to find ways to do these kinds of things at all price points so because we don't think good design and good places should be uh, limited to just uh, those that uh, are extremely well off. We think there's a good uh, we can do this and create good environments everywhere. Um, places that are focused on technology and places that are focused on individuals and human beings. And so we find our place our, ourselves now in this place where we're mixing all these different project types that we sort of grew up on knowing whether it's an office building, it's a hospital, it's a hotel, it's a single family house. And we're putting them together because the the sort of the well a lot of jurisdiction a lot of cities now are mandating that that rather than segregating uses, you put them together in mixed use environments. You know, where you have ground floor retail restaurant people living above all that. You have a lot of that here in California. It's not uh, so prevalent around other places in the country, East Coast, West Coast. So it's being uh, mandated, and some like uh, 
thousands of acres where we're trying to, this on the left is actually Scripps Research Institute is relocating or, or starting a center in South Florida. And this is 4,700 acres of basically creating a new city around that will support, attract, and retain the people that work and support at Scripps Institute and what makes a good place to create uh, uh, impromptu interaction that's going to help spark the next thought that solves the next biotech uh, dilemma that they're dealing with to urban, re- urban renewal projects. I dug this out and dusted it off because we don't, we don't show this, but uh, we still say it. This was, you know, you, you read the books and it says, okay, if you're going to start a business, you've got to have, you have the mission statement. Well, it was years before we had a mission statement, and we had some people internally trying to help write it, and it always came across as this marketing thing, and, and so I resisted. We don't have titles. We didn't have mission statements, and we still don't really have mission statements. Um, but this was the first thing that we ever came up with that everyone agreed, all the principals agreed, that's what we're about. We're in business to design. And I think advice to you if you're thinking of starting a business or helping one grow is to be real clear about what you're in business for. Uh, so the number one thing we're in business for is to design. We want to make money. It's not profit. It's not other stuff. It's about we want the opportunity to design, and we can elaborate and say it's good. We want to do good projects and all that, but it's just simply to design. That's what drives us, to create things. Uh, and certainly the second one, we want to do really good work, and uh, and we've built our firm on, on really on the issue of practice, uh, practicing good service to the clients because they do have a choice. Because we're not selling products, we're selling services, which is a different, just a diff- different animal than perhaps some of the speakers you've heard from, where, where something's created and then it's marketed and sold. We're uh, we're selling service, and then we aspire uh, to be a place where uh, everyone in our firm can seek their potential. Not everyone's going to be a principal in the firm, but we want them to go wherever they can seek their spot. And we can't always have a spot for everyone, but um, but that's our goal. And then a few years ago, we decided that wasn't enough, so we actually we, distru- we decided rather than a mission uh, statement that we'd get into values, and these, I won't read them, you can read them yourself, and you can tell there's a connection to those first three that we did a long time ago. Um, and this became important. As, as, for, as your companies grow, there's an issue of culture transfer. When there are ten people in an office that's smaller than this auditorium, you don't have to write this stuff down. Everyone hears it, they feel it, they breathe it. You know, it's just in the room. When you grow outside, you know, of more than about 20 people, uh, in my mind, you start having this issue of how do you perpetuate the culture? What are you in? What are you in business for? What matters? How do I make a decision? You know, how, how do you? If we're all working together, how do you make a decision that you think is in sync with me? All those things become amplified. And then when you start another office, you have another location. It's it goes up exponentially. And so right now, for, for me as managing principal, one of the toughest things that I have to do is try to figure out a way to perpetuate the culture that made us successful. Because we, we're pretty confident that what we figured out how to do uh, works. Our clients tell us it works. In fact, we have one client, he, he told, he, a reference, he, get, he told a prospective client, he said, I don't know what, you know, they called and said, what do you think about LRK? And he said, oh, they're good. You know, you ought to hire them. He said, well, what is it? And he said, I don't know what it is they do. They just do something extra. There's something, there's something sort of magical that comes out of that. And we don't have, there are no secrets in our business. 
It's just, you know, it's just look you in the face, eyeball to eyeball, and do the right thing and say, you know, and work hard and create good work and, uh, and deliver value above and beyond that. Now, having said that, we are actually, we've, we've uh, in the past couple of years, come up with ways to try to tap into the value. We know, for example, in, in our, when we started off, we're competing with all these other architects, and it's kind of commodity-driven. It's like somebody says, I need a set of plans. Well, we don't think of it that way. It's a design process. But a lot of the, our marketplace thinks of it as, um, just give me a set of blueprints. And we, you know, we don't want to work on those kind of projects because that's just somebody's just looking for a quick answer. And so uh, we've tried to distinguish ourselves uh, in a lot of different ways. And we've had some failures along the way that, that, that I can tell you about if you're interested in terms of where we tried some things and it didn't work. But trying to set ourselves apart, well, we've found that this mixed-use urban design placemaking thing, there aren't too many firms that do that real well and that can do from single family to this range. So we're putting that in a package. And what we're trying to do now is figure out a way to base our compensation on the value that we know we're adding because we've, we've, had our client, we've seen it and we've had our clients tell us that what we're doing, they end up, they, it either rents faster sales at higher price, the velocity of the sales is higher. So how can we get in on that? Well, we started thinking about uh, let's participate on the back end, so to speak, when, the, uh, when their project sells, when their developer uh, sells their product, whether it's a condo, an office building, whatever, that's when they make their money. So their goal is, you have to think of your client's business model. Their goal is spend as little money as I can until I can get the product out there, whatever it is, and then sell that for as much as I can, and that's, where, and that's simple business. So for us, we're a front-end expense to a client. So we have to think, how can we, how can we do this differently? So we sometimes don't follow normal sort of architectural Cultural, uh, you know, professional culture. I mean, in terms of we package it, we don't try to sell them A to Z on the front end. If they only need, you know, A to B, we'll do that. We'll price it in pieces, but we take uh, part of our compensation on the back. When they get paid, they're glad to pay us because that's when they get paid. We're just working into the client's model. It's different from selling things retail, but that's just a, a dynamic of any service business. You have to you have to really dig into what what is your client? How does your client make money? How can you support the client? Help them be more successful at what they're doing, whether it's making money or, or whatever their goal. It's it's really understanding the client's goals. In fact, that's how we make decisions now about the clients that we're taking. Is what what are their goals? What are their values? If they're in sync, how can we help them be successful? And we think we've sort of figured out some, some things and ways to do that. And first is have a lot of good, talented people. Then they see the difference and they're willing to pay us. So one of my favorite books, anybody ever heard of Orbiting the Giant Hairball? It's a great book, easy read. If you If you... Go to work in a corporation of any size or you start a business of any size, I recommend you read this book. It's written by Gordon McKenzie, who used to work for Hallmark, creative director of Hallmark Cards. It's a fabulous book, and it's about the hairball, real simply. The hairball is anytime you have two people together, you start to create a hairball. If you're all by yourself, who's to argue with? You know, you've got, you're in control. 
your rules, your game. You put two people together, three, four, five, six, ten, and somebody's in charge. Somebody's, are, you know, there's something that gets created. And when you build a large organization, you start having to have rules and there are federal regulations and all these things, and it starts to bog down. And that's what Gordon McKenzie was saying is the hairball. And so the goal, is, particularly creative people, that's the last thing they want to do is to get sucked into the hairball. So the other big piece of my job is to try to minimize the hairball so that the creative folks are flying out around it and they're doing their thing and not get bogged down with the infrastructure. And I think that's true in a lot of uh, creative uh, fields. So real quickly, I just wanted to show you this building. It's not a great piece of architecture, but it's an example of, uh, of sort of thinking through things differently and how architects can, can play a different role. But this is all about uh, technology. This is the FedEx Institute of Technology at the University of Memphis. FedEx decided we need to grow some people like you're growing here at this institute. We need to grow them in our backyard. FedEx is based in Memphis. I didn't say that. Um, so they made a grant to the school or a, a gift to the school. And we had just done the World Tech Center, and I really wanted to do this project. In hindsight, I still am glad I did the project, worked on the project, but it was painful. We went through three deans, and uh, it, was, uh, it was just a nightmare in a lot of ways because it was breaking all the rules. It was about, uh, this is a state institution. they got lots of rules about facilities, about how things are taught. And uh, this was about breaking the rules and creating a new uh, a new paradigm for teaching business and teaching interdisciplinary uh, uh, skills to students to have uh, business leaders come in and participate and uh, in mix private sector and education and public sector. And so it was a real challenge. Uh, it's a 92,000 square foot building. It's small, but we had to just bang our heads against the wall to, to sort of get this done in a... Uh, in a way that was conducive to that sort of private sector thought process. It's uh, being successful. Uh, FedEx just put some more money up. They're bringing in speaker, lots of great speakers, and uh, lots of research is going into it now. And uh, we're hopeful that this kind of thing will spin off uh, and create. Uh, I was telling Mike, we sort of got a brain drain in Memphis. A lot of people go off to places like Stanford and then you know, stay here or wherever because it's we're, you know we're a second, third tier city, so we're having to keep people there. And so this is we got involved in this and actually helped make it happen because we believe it's important. The title, and I'm, I'm going to end. The title that I put for my talk was Creative Leadership, partly because I couldn't think of anything in a short amount of time other than that. And we're we're in the creative business, and I knew this was about leadership. But this is an example where we helped. And lot, you can do this in any venue where it's not just about the job. It's about where you live and what's going on and how does it fit into the bigger whole and what's good 10 years down the road and 20 years down the road. And so there's civic leadership that comes out of this that I think all of you can play uh, in, the, in the future. And we promote that in our firm and have helped try to make a lot of projects happen and just go in the extra mile to, to get things to happen. The ballpark's another one in downtown Memphis. Uh, where that was a catalyst for lots of things that happened uh, around there that just wouldn't have happened without a lot of people stepping up outside the boundaries of their business over into the civic realm and just making it happen. And then it pays back in, in lots of ways that you don't even know later on. Um, thanks for uh, your indulgence. I guess we're uh, four minutes into our Q&A. Yes? Hi. Um... So can you talk a little bit more about the gaming business 
I'm sorry. Say, say the last part of it. Yeah, just um, your whole view on the New Orleans uh, rebuilding. Um, you know, do you plan on getting involved in that? And um, do you think architecture uh, can do a lot to help rebuild that? Sure. Okay. Should I try to summarize the question? The question generally is, is uh, how to um, how do you, how do you go about attracting clients in the early days of a firm when you're trying to compete and you don't necessarily have the the full uh, uh, resume as a firm to do so. And then the second part was uh, uh, the role that architects and architecture can play in, the, in New Orleans and the impact of Katrina along the Gulf Coast. The first one is, I'll just tell you what we did. We didn't, we didn't even know really how to price what we did when we started the firm because the firms we worked for kept everything behind closed doors. So we just had to ask around and do the best we could. And I know we were lower than everybody else because our overhead was lower and that's all we needed. So it's one, you know, that's the way a lot of uh, uh, entrepreneurs start their business. They're, go, they're diving in low and they, and they work hard. And that's what we did. And, and then we, you have to sell yourself. And, you, and I think uh, part of it had to do with our passion for what we do. And, um, and we had a decent, even though we were young and, and Richard was a little bit older, we had a decent track record in, in the community. People knew um, enough about us to, get, to take a chance on us. You know, and we just, we just had to go in and talk to them. And it was tough. Those first few years were tough. Uh, we actually got a lot of referrals from other architects. They were, they were willing to, you know, things that they couldn't afford to do because they were too low, uh, price point was too low, or they just didn't want to do it because it was a small job they didn't think much of. And, uh, and that helped us. And we just, uh, then we called on relationships that we had where we, you know, contacts that we had uh, from our previous employment. We didn't go attack our firm's clients, our previous firm's clients. But we just worked those, communi- those networks. In our business, and I think this is true in a lot of business, people hire, hire people. It's relationship driven, particularly in the service business. You got to be competent first, but then if they like you and they trust you and they know you'll stand behind your word, You'll get work. Uh, if you don't do any of those, they'll, they'll go somewhere else. So that's a big piece of, of it. And then on the Katrina question, New Orleans and, and the Gulf Coast, uh, actually one of my partners is going down Friday to look at Biloxi. Uh, we were not involved in that first wave that uh, if you heard about the planners, all the new urbanists going down and planning that, uh, uh, we, we have all that information. We're in the loop. We'll probably be involved in the next wave. We just couldn't get and in, in, it was a short fuse. Everybody had to show up. But we're, some of our clients are going down and looking at it as well. So we'll be involved. And it is, it's a great opportunity to set a new standard for um, building good places because we've, we've done a good job at building a lot of really bad stuff. Uh, yes. Um, should I repeat? Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, Tina asked if there are places on campus that uh, I was uh, particularly inspired by, and then the second part was do we ever turn down clients uh, because they don't have the same vision. On the first one, I don't know. I still, I'd have to get the map out and walk around, so I don't know the names of the buildings, but certainly the, uh, the church. So, yeah. Memorial Church. I mean, that's fantastic as an old building, and, and as an architect, it's uh, it's great to see those old buildings still there. 
the tower, the Hoover Tower as an icon is fantastic. And I like just the textures, the colors, the the, uh, uh, the care that's obviously uh, put into this place and, and, and taken care of is, is impressive. Uh, and then just some of the spaces, the, the quadrangle and, and, and some of the – you turn the corner and you're in this tight little space and the landscaping is great. Uh, all of those different varied spaces make it uh, appealing. We went and looked at the Clark Center, the new building. Um, really, if, if I just had a blank sheet of paper and no, and no client, I would probably design modern work. But we do everything from extremely traditional to modern, and we like it all. It's not about style. It's uh, is it good design. And I think the styles and the good design, as it changes over time, that represents history. And so it, it's it's what's great. What I see here is you can you see that spectrum, you know, that evolution of the campus, uh, which is I think is fantastic. And um, I like the new building. I was I was trying to think how would that work in other climates like Memphis. And, and you know, you guys can do things here with architecture and outdoor spaces that we we can't do in other places of the country. Can't do some of that in Memphis. I'm going to Detroit uh, Friday night. Certainly can't do it up there. Uh, you know, it's just so you have an advantage here to do some great architecture because of the climate that you live in. Second question was, oh yeah, yes, uh, absolutely. Some clients, um, some clients want to do things that uh, we consider inappropriate for current day you know, design because we know it's not sustainable, you know, building more suburban models that are pro that have proven in places to uh, not hold up over time. You know, they don't, the life cycle is very uh, slow that, that we'll walk away from those if the client won't pay us adequately so that we can pay our staff and our consultants. Uh, obviously, we can't do that. So we, we're pretty rigid about uh, certain criteria, but at the same time, we're, some firms will say, and this is a much easier business model, I think, for any business. If we only did office buildings, for example, it's much easier to get everybody on the team up to speed, top speed on doing office buildings. The production of our design process and delivery of documents is all much easier. Um, what we do and the reason we accept all those different project types is we like that diversity. It keeps us motivated and stimulated, and, and uh, so that cr and it creates different disciplines. So we'll take or turn down projects based on that mix. You know, we we like having. It's great to have a museum project going. We haven't done that many, but it's great to have one of those in the office, and it's great to have a single-family house, and it's great to have this high-rise modern condo going. And it just creates diversity uh, of thought in, in the firm. And I think that cl some clients come to us and they see that and recognize it, and that's what they want. And those are the people we want to work for. We don't. There was a time when we were, when we started the firm, we said we can do anything for anyone because we were hungry and we needed the work, and we really thought we could, but we can't. Sometimes we're so there's some things we're not qualified to do. I mean, we can't do everything. You can't be great at everything. Uh, we don't do uh, acute care hospitals anymore. We did, but we really don't have the staff that has a passion for that. We don't do prisons. We don't do industrial facilities. There are things we don't do, but sort of live, work, play um, facilities and project types, we do those, and it's, so it's a composition that we try to put together. Who's first? Go. Go ahead. 
You know, you mentioned that you were doing this new pricing scheme where you sort of get compensated based on the value that you end up adding to your clients. I'm just wondering how well received that was uh, with some of the clients you maybe tested that out with. And also to the extent of which you've actually engaged in any international projects. I know that the actual style and some of the values of some of the clients maybe overseas might be different and how right. you sort of participate in it. Right. Okay, first question. You'll remind me of the second one. Let's go. The, the, now you got to do the first one again. You lost me with it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so the question is on, on the value-added uh, pricing compensation formula that, that we've worked up, and we're still refining it. Uh, we have, uh, I'll say, moderate success. It's hard to take a client that we've been working with for 10 years and just be giving them fixed fees to do fixed price, to now say, okay, we're going we're gonna to work this way from now on. Uh, so obviously it's a little easier if we're, particularly if we're exporting, we may be going into a new city. I mean, we're doing work from Toronto to South Florida, Colorado, mostly sort of the eastern two-thirds of the U.S. Um, uh, it's a whole lot easier to, if we get the phone call from someplace we've never been and they describe it and they say, we want you guys doing this. And we say, and we just say, here's how we work. We have base fees. We have success fees as well. Sometimes what we're doing is getting... Um, Entitlements, you know, getting the zoning help. Well, as soon as the entitlements are in place, the value of that property just went up tremendously. And we know we're pretty good at helping sell that uh, effectively and do the right thing. So we get, oftentimes now we're putting it, we say uh, base fees, we've got to cover our cash flow and make money. Success fees for getting that value bumped up. And if they don't make it, they don't pay us that. And then at the tail end, when they develop the property, there's a, there's a higher value there. And it's uh, if it's a residential base, for example, it might be, a few hundred dollars per unit. But if there's 2,000 units, it, all those, you know, it's just, it's not huge, but it, it adds up and it makes a difference for us. Plus, it changes the psychology of the marketplace about us and about what we do. Now, you know, the interesting thing, though, the hardest part right now is to get the staff and our firm to be able to say those words. You know, to be able to say, well, here's how we work. And we have value-added fees at the end because it's so different than we've ever done. And, and I don't know of any other architects doing it. Uh, I'm sure there are other architects that have different mechanisms for value-added, but in that particular formula. Um, and so they're, they're uncomfortable asking for that kind of compensation. Generally, designers are uncomfortable asking for money, period. We would all work for free if we could because we just want to design. You know, back that statement, we just want to, we just want to do what we do. And uh, unfortunately, we have to have money to eat and uh, pay rent and all that stuff. Otherwise, now you had a second part. What was that? Right, just about um, whether you've worked on international projects or considered up working on any international projects. We um, question is if we do international work, and we we have worked in Mexico, uh, Puerto Rico, not international. Canada, we're working in. We have we've been. We've had questions or, or inquiries about uh, a little bit in Europe and uh, even China and New Zealand. These are just a few here and there, but we actually have zero interest because of lifestyle choice. There's no one. If someone, this is a great, here's our entrepreneurial spirit in our firm. If someone with the right talent showed up and said, I want to work for you guys and I want to open a, a market in Europe, I mean, I'd ask a lot of questions. It wouldn't be an easy decision. But we would consider it. The reason we're not doing it now is there's no one at a principal level in our firm that wants to be on a plane that much. So it's, a, it's about being at home with your family and, or whatever, you know, whatever your personal choices are about how you spend the time. You're not working, and we work a lot. And no one wants to do it. 
obviously, if the market dried up here, we would do it, but uh, we'd do what we have to do. Um, but right now, it's just not an interest. Yes, sir. Said, uh, in terms of building a sense of, uh, of ownership and increasing the value of your company, that you're offering stock to uh, the, the designers and the architects working with, working with your firm. And I was curious about uh, how that has kind of played out with regards to uh, the value of that stock and if they can sell that kind of thing and, and what that, that stock actually means to them other than having ownership of, of a company and how... Uh, the firm actually uh, relates to the, the greater values of the world in general, how uh, perhaps lead certification and other sustainable design issues have played into right. uh, LRK. Okay. First question has to do with just how we value stock and what that means to people that own stock. Before we did the ESOP, which means you know, everybody participates, employee stock ownership plan is what that means, and everybody, when you set that up, everybody participates. It's not, that's the way the laws are written. And so we put, in essence, the firm puts money into everyone's account, so to speak, in terms of owning stock. And that's, it's formula-driven. And so, you know, if we, the, the better we do each year, then the more um, we're able to buy stock on behalf of everyone, if that makes any sense. And so if you leave, there's a vesting period. And, uh, and don't again, this, I hire consultants to help do this, but in general terms... <laughs> If you, if you, there's a vesting period, so say it's five years. I think that's what it is. If you stay there, if you're with us for the full five years, when you leave, you take the value of that stock with you. If you leave uh, after one year, I think maybe you get 10% of it or something like that. So part of it's to encourage people to stay and build value in the firm that way. That's the ESOP. The original stock ownership uh, transfer had to do with, uh, uh, it was about leadership and being an entrepreneur, internal entrepreneur, and all those things, and driving. And so people that really made a difference got a stock offer. Now, that might have been 10 shares at one time, might be 50. But uh, we went from three founding partners that own a third each to uh, Carson and I now own uh, less than 25%, and the balance is owned by the rest of the staff. Uh, Daryl owns about 8%. Uh, the value of the stock has gone up tremendously. We did have a dip, the recession. That was one of the uh, tough times that we could talk about, the recession. 9-11 hit us really hard, and, uh, and we went from 160 to 110 people in about a year. Uh, that was the, the dark days, we called them. That was tough. And, uh, and the stock did the same. Just like, I mean, it works. It's a valuation formula, and it works just like any other stock. I mean, you have different valuation formulas, but it has to do with, uh, you know, retained earnings and book value. And then uh, uh, as we grew and became more profitable and, and knew we were going to make it, we actually, there's a slight increase in the value over just book value. And then that gets, you know, it's a per share basis. This year, for example, the stock's going up about 45%. So it's not bad. It's been a, it's been a really good investment for people that, that bought in. And they see it. And so when they leave, they take it with them. We, can't, we pay them out, and we have the ability to uh, pay them out over time. You had one other piece that I think is a short answer. Oh, yeah, it leads. Uh, yeah, are we doing things on sustainable design? Uh, we, we have several people lead certified. We're actually participating in the review and writing of the uh, leads uh, 
manual on neighborhood design because we're doing so much with the planning. We, th we feel like well, that's where we should focus. Let's get the plan right, and then we can focus on the buildings. So we're, we're, uh, we're very much involved and hope, but we want to accelerate that and actually do more. Um, before doing the dinner raffle, um, I'd like, uh, on behalf of uh, BASIS and SCDP, I'd like to thank uh, Frank's Frank Ricks for joining us today. Thank you.